Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Software Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, thank you, Mara. Uh, my name is Tom Williams. I'm an assistant professor at Colorado School of Mines. Yeah. So thanks so much for joining us. And um, I think today's topic will be about uh, your petition. I think that's a very important movement for our community, especially in robotics and AI. And that's the name of No Justice No Robots. Can you tell us how you start the petition with your colleague and why it's important to have it in our field? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my colleagues and I in Colorado started this petition, No Justice, No Robots, mm. uh, where basically we agree not to uh, perform research, uh, robotics research for or in collaboration with the police and in which we um, we agree to petition our universities to try to divest themselves of ties mm. with police organizations. Mm-hmm. The motivations from it really came from all of the police violence that we were seeing in Denver um, over the over the course of the, of the last month, with peaceful protesters getting tear gassed, with rubber bullets being fired at children's faces, etc., mm-hmm. um, which basically led to the mutual sentiment that these were really not the types of people who we wanted to be giving robots to. Um, mm. Uh, which I think is important right now because we're seeing more and more, um, more and more robotics work in which people are performing those types of collaborations and working with the police. Um, in uh, India, for example, um, there have been recent there have been recent stories of robots being developed uh, for 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 the police that are explicitly armed with um, with uh, with tear gas. Um, which we haven't we haven't seen that type of work in the U.S. yet, um, but uh, part of our goal is making sure we try to avoid that type of, of work. Um, I think that how that being said, the the while the motivations for the protest uh, for the for the petition were initially very much grounded in this police violence we were seeing um, and trying to make sure that. Um, we made clear that developing robots that could exacerbate that type of police brutality were not the types of robots we wanted to be developing. Uh, while that was the original focus, uh, in talking with people, um, with other researchers afterwards and, and hearing the reasons why, um, why some people, despite maybe agreeing with the majority of what we were saying, uh, had, you know, had a few qualms for, for why, they, why they were not going to sign the petition, um, that was really informative in helping to uh, to articulate, at least for me, I can't speak for the other people behind the proposal, but for me it's been really helpful in articulating um, so some of the, some reasons for, for refusing this type of collaboration that I think are even more important than what we were originally talking about. Mm-hmm. So specifically, um, some of, so a lot of the uh, sentiments I got from people who, who, 
who did not want to sign the petition um, were saying were in one of two camps. It was either that, well, I I have a strong working relationship with particular police officers in my area, and I I trust them. I trust that they are not going to misuse this technology. Um, similarly, there were some researchers who said, well, I don't know. What if in the future I wanted to work in this particular application for robots with the police that is completely nonviolent um, and very clearly socially beneficial? Um, and what, what uh, hearing these hearing hearing these perspectives helped me realize was that a lot of the concerns that we should be having with working with the police is not actually about the police misusing robotic technologies. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, it is obviously developing robots that are going to explicitly that could be explicitly be used to harm people. Obviously, that is something we want to avoid. But it's maybe not the biggest even the biggest source of risk for the field of robotics. Um, So there was an article in the Robotics and Automation magazine last year by uh, Bredel Rigetti and Madhavan, I believe, um, where they talk about where we as roboticists get our funding and who we choose to work with. Mm -hmm. Um, And they used as an example the case of MIT's collaboration with uh, with Jeffrey Epstein, and yeah. they're taking a funding from Jeffrey Epstein. Um, and they point out that while the the way in which that money was used uh, had clear social benefit, um, that the what the technology was used for is almost completely unimportant, right? That's not why um, the collaboration was problematic. The, pro- the, the reason why the collaboration was problematic um, well, there were a variety of reasons, but I think two key reasons um, are that one, before Epstein was widely exposed as a child sex trafficker, yeah. um, he used his collaboration to help launder his reputation mm. uh, and, and to help to show that he was legitimate, right? Because he was working with these people who had good reputations um, and that helped him launder his own reputation. Um, and the other challenge is that... Uh, after he he was widely exposed, well, clearly this caused a um, caused a scandal for MIT because the mm. collaboration seemed to imply that there were some subset of people at MIT who were who were uh, okay with Epstein's actions um, because otherwise, why would they have been willing to to associate themselves with? Uh, with Epstein. Mm-hmm. And I think you can make the same argument uh, with the police in, in the U.S. that um, even if the technologies that you would be developing with U.S. police forces are socially beneficial, by collaborating with them, what you are saying is, I condone this institu- the institution of American policing. I, I believe that this is a an organization that at least in its current, uh, you know, in, in its current, in its current form, uh, should exist. And I think that the right way, uh, that I think that, uh, collaborating with them, um, uh, uh, will, uh, is not just going to be beneficial, but is 
that we should be engaging in these collaborations um, in order to advance that institution. Mm -hmm. This is obviously obviously problematic because uh, the, Amer the American institution of policing originated, um, it has violent origins. It, it originated maybe not 100%, but to a large extent in order to uh, enact violence on people of color and to help enslave and in, uh, enslave people of color and ensure that they could, they would remain enslaved. Uh, and today, while of course that is not the only thing that police do, it still remains a major uh, a major part of of what police represent as an institution. Not maybe not as individuals, but as an institution in this country, in terms of the violence that they enact on people of color and their role in the system of mass incarceration that essentially is a modern, a modern form of slavery in this country. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, I can't, I can't, I don't want to say that I'm speaking for the, the other people who, uh, who, who worked on this petition with me, but from my perspective, I think that this, um, refusing this type of collaboration as a way of, uh, of saying that we do not condone um, this I inherently racist institution is perhaps even more important than refusing to create technology that could hypothetically, mm -hmm. ostensibly be misused. Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned many loaded points here. The first one is, um, I think the problem is type of cooperation between academic institutions and on political side, for example, Epstein, what happened with MIT mm -hmm. in this case. And, and that's why maybe some people have resentment. They don't want really, or maybe they don't believe in this petition. And how do you see yep. this problem? Can we have like a remedy for the, how the academia is run in the first place? How we, yeah, that's a cure. Absolutely. Um, I think part of the challenge is that it's impossible here to not take a political stand, mm. right? I think that um, who we choose to collaborate with, um, it is by, by it, it's impossible to, uh, through silence, avoid, avoid taking a political perspective, right? By not in engaging or by, by staying silent, you are tacitly uh, taking uh, taking the alternate alternate side of, of, of the debate. Um, this is sort of, I guess, near and dear to my heart as a researcher, because in my own research, I study human-robot communication and moral, moral communication specifically. Um, and so in my own work, a part of what we research is how robots should respond to ethical commands, or sorry, to unethical commands. Mm. Um, and part of our, one of our driving motivations there is that it's not just enough to just refuse to take a, an unethical action that's commanded of you, but rather when you're asked to do something inappropriate or when you see somebody else taking an action that's inappropriate, you have a moral obligation to speak out and make clear to everybody that this isn't something you support. Otherwise, the fact that you are not responding, the fact that you're not speaking out mm. can be taken as tacit approval of that action. Um, and so in our research, we're interested in this with robots because our research has shown that robots actually have a lot of moral influence. Um, and so if robots 
don't speak out, or if they seem to imply that they'd be willing to comply with an unethical request, then this actually changes people's views of what it is or is not morally appropriate within that sort of limited uh, context of interaction. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, with us as roboticists, as actual humans, of course the moral influence that we're going to be able to, to wield is so much larger, right? So if these are things we're con concerned with with our, with our robots, then of course we need to take the same type of positions um, as humans in our daily lives. Okay, in terms of uh, what we can do as, as academics, um, so I in addition to simply speaking out and, and being clear about, the, uh, about our moral positions as they relate to the technologies we're developing, um, so, uh, so, uh, Chad Jenkins has been involved with, uh, this, this Black King Computing project. And if you go to blackkingcomputing.org, they have, uh, a long list of action items that we as academics can take. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's a, a really, a really key resource for understanding what we can do as academics. Um, but I was on, on a panel on this topic last night with Chad, um, and he, emphasize as well that one thing we can be doing is is framing um our our own in, in order to as academics obviously one of the areas in which we have potential for influence uh is on how we how we hire uh both in terms of new students and new faculty um and in terms of uh how uh, outreach activities and activities that are explicitly intended to increase diversity are incentivized within, within our institutions. Uh, and he suggested that one way of encouraging incentivization of those types of activities and strategies is by framing them um, in terms of, of Title VI, uh, which explicitly, uh, you know, at the, at the federal U.S. government level, um, mandates uh, that we have to treat uh, that use of government funds um, and you know government associated organizations of which public universities are of course one um, need to treat people equally regardless of of their uh, of their race um, and so by framing this as really a, a legal obligation this might allow us to exert some institutional pressure to make sure that um, that these types of initiatives uh, that faculty should be participating in to increase um, fairness, equity, diversity, inclusion, access, etc., are really appropriately incentivized. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I really, I really would like to stop at this point because it's very interesting uh, about inclusion, diversity. But before going to that, because I would like to ask you, what could be a repercussion behind the petition? Or you, you really, uh, you launched it with your colleague. What the expectation mm -hmm. you you it would you would you would receive from the community or what is community? Since you highlighted that everyone have to not be silent, you have to speak out. But we know for mm -hmm. a fact there is disparity, well, disparity in academia, and and maybe some afraid to lose their grant from maybe military institution or police side, and that sounds complicated a little bit. So what you, what's your expectation behind uh, this movement? Sure. Um, I think that uh, ultimately this is something that is very uh, individual 
and personal, right? Um, where people, individual researchers need to decide for themselves, of course, mm. what type of, of research they are comfortable doing. Um, nobody, uh, of course, nobody forces you to do research on a particular topic. Uh, but also, you know, uh, it, at least in most cases, nobody forces you not to do research on, on a particular topic. And so I think for those who are, uh, who are in the same, in the same, uh, camp as me and, and, and my, the, the folks with whom I wrote the petition, um, you know, we are appreciative of, of folks that, that are signing it, but I think there are also a lot of cases of people who you know, who are not and who have good reasons for doing so um, in terms of, you know, there are there are folks who have who have uh, collaborations with uh, in search and rescue context, for example, mm. with uh, that involve law enforcement. Uh, and while they might agree with the majority of the petition, um, don't want to sign it because they want to keep doing that impactful work. And, you know, I really respect that. Um, for my personal position, that's not the, you know, that's not that's not the position I hold. But I think maybe even what's more Im- important than than people signing or not signing is people reflecting on their position and being able to, to articulate for themselves what they're what they are or are not comfortable uh, and why. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say for myself, for example, um, I have. I uh, have a number of projects with the with the military. I'm okay with taking military funding, but I have had to articulate for myself what it is, where where the difference lies, uh, what type of funding within uh, within military context I I am willing to take and what I'm not. And I think that process of forcing myself to to sit down and articulate. Uh, my own sort of moral boundaries has has been um, incredibly valuable and much more important, I think, than just um, maybe making making that statement of signing or not. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting one because um, I don't know if you agree, but I think individually, maybe not affected as collectively, um, and maybe if we're speaking about level of institution as well, I don't know if an institution can take a stand out of how the technology developed in the lab, uh, any funds you get from military side or like that, etc. How you can make sure you develop the right technology and misused by police side or military, for mm-hmm. example. How we can make sure this yeah. happen? Well, so I think I, this is a really interesting point that I've been thinking about. Uh, so as in as a human robot interaction researcher, um, I have to deal with. Um, considering the ethical implications of my work all the time. Because whenever I write, whenever I want to do an experiment, I have to write an IRB proposal where I have to justify the risks that are imposed by the experiment, um, but also ideally articulate the risks and benefits to society of this type of work. Um, which is interesting because as, as a human subject researcher, I need to do this when I'm going to be doing research that uses human subject participants, but mm-hmm. people aren't required to um, to go through this process of ethical reflection and justification 
when they pursue research that is going to have huge societal benefits, mm. but doesn't require them to recruit human subject participants for their research. Um, so one way of doing this might be to ask universities to, to ask, um, ask researchers to get IRB approval um, when they are submitting proposals, um, regardless of whether or not human subjects are used. Um, the same way that researchers that are using human subjects have to get IRB approval at the start of their grants. Uh, so that's one mechanism. Um, yeah. However, I agree with you. I, I don't know um, to what extent it's really feasible uh, for institutions as a whole to be uh, to be deciding which types of agencies from which um, individual researchers are or are not, you know, permitted to receive funding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. But I think going to again about funding, because I don't know if you think in the longer term or maybe in also in short term, do you think we have to exclude funding from military side or maybe village side? Do you think there's something we have to cut from academia between this kind of cooperation in the long term or in the short term? Um, I, so again, personally, personally, um, I do not. I, I do not have the same type of of moral objections to uh, to military funding that I do with police funding, um, in part because I think they're, they're, two just com they're two completely different, um, hmm. I think it's two completely different types of situations, uh, especially in, in the United States where military funding is really just one of the different vehicles by which um, funding for science gets passed to scientists, where uh, American taxpayers uh, pay pay taxes, and some proportion of that ends up going to research, uh, to basic research, not necessarily military applied research. Uh, some of which gets sent through agencies like NSF, some of which gets sent through the DoD, some of which gets sent through NASA, some through NIH, etc. Mm -hmm. So, personally, um, I think that that it's a it's a fundamentally different type of situation as opposed to when you're talking about um, performing a collaboration with, uh, specifically with an institution that whose sort of founding purpose, uh, is grounded in a system of white supremacy. Yeah. So I, I personally think it's different, but of course I respect the positions of, there are other high profile robotics researchers who don't feel that way and do have negative views about accepting military funding. And I, of course, respect those positions. And I think that those researchers should speak out and articulate their arguments for that because it forces everybody else to mm -hmm. have to reflect on why they are or are not okay with, with that type of work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. I yeah. would say that I think an important point here, when you talk about long-term or short-term, um, I think that it's important to make that distinction with with the police as well. Mm. I think part of the problem is that right now is that uh, when you are collaborating with law enforcement, you are condoning this specific institution that has existed for two centuries 
in the United States that has particular origins and that continues to operate in particular problematic ways. That being said, if we had a different system, um, a, a different system of law enforcement in the United States in the future, uh, for example, um, if law enforcement was really um, a, a more limited community-oriented uh, public safety initiative within a larger system, uh, that was really a new system that was divorced from, um, from the historical roots of the current institution of American policing, then a lot of these concerns would go away, right? So our, um, our concerns right now are less you should not be collaborating with people who enforce laws. Mm. It is you should not be collaborating with the current specific institution of local law enforcement and policing that exists in the United States right now and that has origins uh, and that has its specific origins um, uh, in tied to violence against people of color. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important point, and I would really like to reflect on that since the events happened last, last month. What happened in academia, it revealed that we have an issue. And one of them, uh, that's a feeling we had all the time, that inclusion and diversity was like not deployed effectively in our university. And mm-hmm. it's reflect we have an issue. And that's very interesting. It's like a revolution to how to be inclusive community. The first thing is because I, I have the perception, I don't know if I'm right in that, that some people underestimate why, sci- for example, nature and science would have stand, stand, to stand with Black Lives Matters. And some people suggest, please be scientific and don't be involved in such mm-hmm. movement like that. And I, I was kind of pissed off because I think this action, uh-huh. of course, it, it plays a significant role how we, we, we play our research. So first of all, I would like to ask you if you can clarify why it's important for scientific magazines or academic institutions to support, uh, for example, Black Lives Matter because of what they, what they have recently. Do you think it's important because some people say, yeah. no, you have to be separated in that case? No, I think so for, for two reasons. One, uh, so outside of the context of specific technologies, um, I think we as scientists often cast ourselves as designing uh, technology to improve society or designing technology um, to, you know, quote, make the world a better place, right? Yeah. Uh, which is said often enough that it has become a cliche, right? But if you are not working to advocate for segments of society that are systemically oppressed by your society, then by saying you want to make design technology that is going to improve society, really what you're doing is you're saying, I want to design technology for a particular segment of society that currently maintains power, Hmm. Um, specifically for white society, for male society, for white male society, et cetera, right? Uh, And so uh, unless you're going to be clear about supporting society as as a whole, then I think it's sort of hypocritical um, to, to to act as if you are really taking the actions that are going to, you know, just benefit society in general. But moreover, as roboticists, um, the technology that we develop 
it's impossible to divorce from these particular implications, right? Mm -hmm. You can say, oh, well, I'm going to design robots, but I'm, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to be political. I'm not going to think about race and gender and all of those soft things, right? But by doing that, what happens is you end up designing robotic technologies that do take a stand because you're simply not thinking about them. Uh, an example of this has been in uh, humanoid robots where we see that almost all of the commercial humanoid robots on the market are white, mm. right? Uh, and the designers might say, oh, well, you know, that wasn't intentionally a design choice um, or, oh, well, I'm just, oh, well, they're just white because, you know, I don't know, Apple products are white or a lot of te technology is white, right? Uh, but if, if you're just taking that stance where you are designing the products without thinking about these types of things, then you end up creating these this line of entirely white robots that does implicitly take a stand. It says that white is the default um, and, you know, any, and, and, and other, anything else is the exception, mm -hmm. right? Similarly with voices, this is uh, maybe even more, so, more true with voices where um, the voices that robots have are almost uniformly um, white uh, American, uh, e well, e either white American male or white American female, right? Uh, there isn't a broader di diversity of voices in our robots, um, which also means that we view essentially the default as white American male or white American female, mm -hmm. um, and which which claims that sort of that is what is normal and anything else is the exception, right? And so by by just going with that default and refusing to, to think about these topics, we you are um, actively supporting a system of white and male hegemony. Um, and so I don't think it's really possible for, at least for, for people working in humanoid robots, um, to avoid doing work that does not, uh, does not um, does not engage with those types of topics. Mm -hmm. um, yes, you could argue that maybe if you are doing uh, doing work on uh, you know maybe swarm robotics or something like that <laughs> that are not uh, appearing like humans or communicating like humans, then those particular issues don't come into play. Um, but I think that regardless of what sector of robotics people work in, they need to be getting trained in and and routinely thinking about the the general landscape of robot uh, of topics within robot ethics, whether it is um, risk of harm, uh, economic impact, uh, social impact, uh, risk of uh, discrimination, privacy risks, etc. Uh, because while one of these one of these sources of, of risk to our society might not arise for every robotic technology. I think it's going to be hard to find a robotic technology that does not present at least at least one one source of risk that 
uh, we as a robotic roboticists and robotics researchers need to be actively thinking about um, and you know actively trying to prevent if, if we really care about making society a better place. I think you see a mere interesting point, and I would like to stop in one point, for example, in the intellectual inclusiveness as well. So when you design, like what you said about human and robots, so do you think that we have a problem here, how to be intellectually inclusive? And before going to that, because I know you said a lot of interesting points, what inclusion meant to you, as since you have the white privilege as in your community, what does inclusion mean to you? Right, so I think that it is very important, uh, maybe it, you know, it's especially important for people like me who are you know, white, straight, American men to understand our sources of privilege um, and uh, to actively, this is another reason why it's, it's important for us to actively work to um, actively work to facilitate um, equity both through our, both through our research and through our general professional activities. Because again, by, by not doing so, sort of uh, just tacitly uh, works to facilitate the existing system, which only works to benefit you know, people who look like us. Mm. Um, I think that, uh, what, so for, for me uh, this past year, um, being, a, uh, being a faculty member, uh, at a school that does not have a large number of diverse faculty um, oh, has been challenging uh, in terms of recruitment of students from a more diverse range of communities mm. because it is, of course, difficult to recruit somebody to come and work with you if they look at your, you know, your school and look at your faculty and don't see anybody who looks like them. Exactly. Um, so this past year, uh, one thing I did was I volunteered to help lead my department search, um, which I think any you know any of us in in academia, if in, it's it's an easy step for us to do to actively try to correct some of these challenges. Um, and so as part of that effort, I made sure that not just the people who we you know looked at, but the people we actually invited to campus included women, black candidates, Latino candidates, LGBT candidates, mm. uh, and, and moreover, people who were at the intersection of those, uh, of those areas mm -hmm. um, to make sure that um, the types of people who we were considering hiring um, reflected uh, the types of, not just the, the types of students we have, but the types of students who we want to be recruiting in order to have a more diverse community. Mm -hmm. That being said, of course, this past year, like a lot of other departments in the U.S., we weren't able to hire. Um, so, you know, a lot of that work sort of went out the window. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm hoping that that type of uh, strategy and mindset is something that can carry over into our, our searches in future years um, and, uh, and can help serve as a, as a template for, for then also how we conduct our, our, our searches for graduate students and undergraduates as mm -hmm. well. That's very powerful. And I think maybe many of the questions coming from here, especially from a student from marginalized groups and underrepresented communities. Mm -hmm. 
and especially because you, you know we have inclusion program at RSS and and one of the comments we receive sometimes uh, from a student that there is a deaf tone they feel they are not heard and maybe we don't know how we can create a safe space so that they can express their own struggle or suggestions however I, I, I don't know if this is the right approach or not and I would like mm -hmm. to ask you do you think in that case we want to foster and make sure we have inclusive community do you think we have to be have create safer space for a marginalized group or just we speak publicly about this issue there is a trade-off here and mm -hmm. I don't know how you see the situation how we make sure the student feel I feel I'm here I feel I'm yep. in a safe space. Mm -hmm. And that's concern from many students. And that's why I make a gap between what we promise them. Of course, this in the last years. Yeah, I think, I think you, I mean, I think we need both, right? I think you need to make sure that students from, one, that students from marginalized communities have safe spaces where they can share these types of concerns. Mm -hmm. I think you need faculty from that, that are both members of those groups and that are not to actively engage with, with students to make sure that those students' concerns are heard and so that, student, that those students know that they are valued members of the community. Mm -hmm. And I think that the senior senior members in the community who do have the sort of the platforms and privilege to speak out in ways that the students might not feel comfortable with or might not really be able to um, do speak out. Now, two caveats there. Um, one, you know, hopefully this is this is the this is the short term right mm. uh, obviously what the the place we want to see the community in in the long term um uh might not might not you know hopefully it's one that will not require these these types of actions but you know in the short term until we are until we do have a real a, a completely equitable community then then we do need to to take those actions mm. um and secondly i think you know we need to be careful that um, we are not placing so you, you talked about like the like the trade-offs between like you know uh, for student for you know students of having a, a, a safe, safe space a safe space where they can just communicate and publicly and speak up versus speaking publicly yeah right uh, you know I think that that we want to make sure that we are not placing a burden on students from those marginalized communities mm. that they have to do sort of emotional they have to perform emotional labor and take you know career risks in order for their concerns to be heard mm. right um i think it is you know it's important uh you know as i said for people who are more senior especially maybe those of us who are not from those marginalized communities um and don't have to deal with this every second of their lives to put in the work to talk with students from those communities to make sure that they know that they're appreciated and make sure that their concerns are heard and then take it upon ourselves to um, to speak out and to try to take active to take active steps to make our communities better so that the burden to do so isn't placed on those 
those students who are the most vulnerable members of the community in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's an that's important point. But I still am afraid about the power dynamics and how how it's run mm-hmm. in, in academic system. And that's something I don't yeah. know. Maybe prejudice is ingrained in people, and that's something maybe hard um, to be for just a student to fight for. And that's really a struggle. Right. Yeah. So if I ask you for intellectual inclusiveness and come back to design of robots as well, and that's, mm-hmm. I think, very important point, how we can make sure we have intellectually inclusive research as well and not be biased for certain research or robotics. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's, it's just a matter of people, right? I think um, in two different ways, one of which is, uh, increasing, in, in, increasing the diversity of our research teams to make sure that um, we have as many different perspectives as possible on our research teams. But the other side is really making sure that we're taking participatory design approaches uh, and human-centered design approaches where we actually, where we don't design our, our technologies in isolation, but instead make sure that we are talking to the communities uh, for whom we are designing our, our technologies and making sure that the people within those te- those communities that we're talking to um, are are diversely represented as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah, if you uh, if you are not talking to your users and your teams are not diverse, then it is going to be very easy for you to accidentally um, um, overlook things that you know in retrospect would have been obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you had, if if you if you were, if your team or your user population um, uh, had been more diverse in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And if I ask you the question about how we can make sure that the developed robotics is going to be beneficial to humanity as a whole, as we start a grant now at four years, five years, I will make sure this lead at the end of the day because you you said something very interesting. You have to consider societal impact, economic as well. And that's something, I don't know, maybe uh, if all faculty members are aware of these points when you develop this research, what, what's the repercussions behind it? So how we can make sure this happen? Make sure this is beneficial at the end of this journey for four or five years? Yeah, so I think it's, I think it's training, mm. right? I think that we need to make sure we're training students that prioritize these uh, these concerns and so if, and understand that ethics like considering the ethics of that technology you develop mm. uh, isn't like an add-on it's not like a bonus feature you tack on at the end but really it should be the, co- the core at the core of what you're doing right that um, and this this manifests in two ways right one is that making sure that as students are trained mm-hmm. uh, in computer science and mechanical engineering, uh, et cetera, that they are being, uh, that they are trained to incorporate uh, the, uh, or that they are trained to interrogate the the ethical implications of what they're doing from day one. Uh, But the other is to make sure that people are um, trained to to identify the valuable problems to solve. As those that address these types of um, societal problems, um, that when you're looking for 
a new problem, um, you're looking for a, a use case for, uh, for, for your robots uh, to be doing so in a way that actively seek where the, the, one of our main motivations should be trying to address these major societal problems that, that, that we're facing and not just um, trying to do something that we are already able to do faster. Um, yeah. I think that, so the way that we are, we are doing this at Minds, which I can briefly speak to, is in our graduate program. Um, so we have a new uh, graduate program in, in robotics where you can do you know, a master's or a PhD or a certificate in robotics. Um, and one of the requirements is that all students have to take um, a, a course in either human-robot interaction or robot ethics. Uh, and this is presented alongside all the other requirements, right? So the same way that you have to take a course in uh, robotic perception, the same way you have to take a course in cognition, the same way you have to take a course in action, you also have to take a course in interaction in society. It's, it's presented at the same sort of level of importance as all the other components. The other piece then is uh, at Minds for our undergrads, uh, we have an ethics across campus initiative where faculty are rewarded for working to integrate ethic uh, discussion of ethical uh, concerns into their courses, right? So it's not just that we say that departments should have a course in the ethical implications of, of you know of their discipline, but rather that ethics should be integrated into the individual courses that comprise that discipline. Um, I would love to see the same thing happen in the future, not just with ethics, but with um, human computer interaction as well. I would love to see HCI uh, and you know, the focus on uh, users and their concerns and, and, and working uh, to address users' needs regardless of ethical implications uh, be something that is also not just relegated to a high level elective, but is, is something instead that is integrated across the curriculum um, so that students learn to evaluate it from day one and so that it keeps being reinforced. I can't agree more with that. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, we are close to the end. We have three questions left. The first question sure. is, do you think ego is important? And why I'm asking this question, because mm -hmm. when you start a petition with your colleague, some academicians maybe have resentment about this petition. And maybe you can change your mind later. You figure out maybe we have to really make a, a deep-rooted change in our uh, community. So do you think ego is important? Well, um, I think that it is difficult. I, I don't know if I would say it's important. I think it's, of course, difficult uh, for, well, let me put it this way. Um, I think it is important to engage in these conversations in a way that does not attack individual people, mm -hmm. right? It, it's important to be uh, conscious of maybe not the egos, but the um, the uh, people's, you know, other researchers' sense of self, right? You you don't necessarily want to be making what, you know, in the politeness literature, we'd call face threats on others that, um, that um, attack their sense of um, self-worth and their, um, their appearance within the community um, if it's not necessary, right? Um, and I think one way of 
in which I, I have tried to do this is by saying that, well, this is, you know, it's important for uh, on the one hand, it, it's important for all of us to make our individual um, come to individual decisions about what we are or are not okay with doing in our own research. But it's also important to understand how our research fits into the larger systems and institutions within our countries. Um, so it's, um, you should, yes, you should make a decision for, uh, for yourself on what you personally feel comfortable with, but that's not necessarily an excuse to ignore um, the larger social ramifications of your work. Yeah. I think maybe the question I would like to skew here, I'm curious, what be the next yeah. step uh, from the movement of the behind the petition? And do you think at the role of individuals in the, in the community, in the robotic community here, what could be the expectation in like in two months or three months that we have like the awareness, just you have to understand your, your position from taking grant from police or maybe another organization, it depends. But sure. do you think what could be the next step? Now you are certain individuals in the community and we want yep. to make sure that the norm and, or maybe the power minimum that you have the morals uh, when you fund your research. Uh, yeah, so what I, expectations for, yeah. Sure, so in terms of next steps. Um, so I'm, in general, I, I, I'm really happy with the response we've received from this. Mm -hmm. I think we've only, I've only, uh, between me and the uh, my, uh, my collaborators who I've talked with, um, I think we've only had one instance of somebody who really responded negatively. Uh, mm -hmm. In most cases, even for people who, who said that they were not going to sign, it was typically, typically a case of, well, I, you know, I, I really support this and I'm glad you're doing this. However, I have this one concern, right? Mm -hmm. And that, again, has been incredibly helpful for us for articulating our positions. So what I'm hoping we'll do is use this really as a starting point for the conversation. Um, what I'm... Uh, so I'm I'm currently working on what I'm taking all the all of the insights I've I've gotten from my conversations with others since releasing the petition, um, and working on a uh, you know a, a, a journal article that more clearly articulates this. Mm -hmm. And what I would love to see happen is this doesn't happen a lot in our field, but in some other fields you have um, commentary on articles where um, articles before an article is published, it gets sent out to the community. Um, where particular people in the community are asked to comment and, and people can write a, a half page or a page uh, in response that, that explains their own positions on the topic. Uh, we don't see that a lot in robotics, in part because most of what we do in robotics is, is not very theory-driven. Mm. Uh, there isn't a lot of um, argumentation between competing theories. Uh, and so we don't see this paradigm, but I, I think this could be a really great opportunity. Uh, this type of work could be a really great opportunity to sort of bring that type of, of uh, community discussion into robotics. Um, and so I'm hoping that we can promote some larger community discussions on this topic through maybe sure. that type of mechanism, as well as maybe debates, debates on this type of topic uh, in workshops or at conferences um, in, in the near future. Yeah, I agree with you. It's very interesting and very important for the community. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. So I would like to skew uh, the last two questions. 
what was the best advice was given to you and would life be changing for you? Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure necessarily whether um, any of the uh, any of whether there's any particular piece of advice that we have received that's been really life changing. But I think maybe um, one uh, one point that I would like to make that 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 others have made that I think is worth rearticulating um, is the the value of um, is the value of promoting voices from people who are not like me, right? Uh, so uh, we the the folks that I collaborated with in writing this proposal um, uh, out in Colorado, we are. We are, we are all white because we have a diversity problem in yeah. robotics in general, but especially in, in states that do not have large um, black populations like Colorado. Mm. Um, and I, so I think that for, for as robotics researchers, um, on the one hand, it's really important for people like, like me who do have privilege um, due to our, our identities to make sure that we are speaking out and taking on some of the labor in ways that um, other people cannot. But it's also really important to make sure that everybody in the community is amplifying the voices of of people of color who are mm-hmm. also um, who are also speaking on this topic. And so, um, it, in 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 service of that, I would like to make to reiterate a point I made um, or to re-highlight a resource I mentioned earlier in this podcast, um, which is the uh, blackincomputing.org website, uh, which has a, um, a long list of action items that we can take as roboticists uh, and as computer scientists. Um, uh, and so I think that uh, that is a valuable resource that everybody in our field should be looking at um, because these are, these are the things that the, that um, people of color in our community would like us to be doing, mm-hmm. and that's what we should be doing. I agree with that. And uh, in the next 100 years, what is thing, what is thing you wish for humanity can do? In the next 100 years? Yeah. Um, <laughs> a lot of things that I, that I, I wish humanity do, would do uh, within the next 100 years, uh, but in, in the spirit of the uh, of the purposes of this podcast and the, the purposes of this particular uh, this particular uh, topic, I would say that what I would like to see at least American society do is to completely completely re-envision the role of law enforcement mm-hmm. and the role of incarceration in this country. I think that if you had asked me two months ago, how far in the future, you know, I wanted to see that happen. Mm-hmm. I might've said 150 years, but I think that with the, with all the conversations that we've been having over the past, over the past month, I think that it has really changed my perceptions of what is possible in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that we should all really be working to, to, uh, do whatever we can um, as scientists, as activists, as community members to try to 
force that type of re-envisioning within a much shorter time span, within the next couple of years or the next couple of decades, if that's what it takes. Yeah. Um, but I think that that, it, that has become more, while it may have previously seemed like a pipe dream, I think that is something that we should all be seeing as something that should be immediately doable um, and that we can all work towards. Yeah, I really support that and really thanks so much for the effort you did and you as a colleague for this movement. And really, I would like to thank you both for your time in the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.